and we're live. Welcome to Uncommon, where people are uncommon and we talk about uncommon things or we talk about common common subjects uncommonly. I have with me today my pal, Varangian, who is a, a gentleman I came across in a place full of interesting people talking about interesting things. We'll call that... Uh, We'll call it a, a manful place, talking about manful subjects manfully. And that's about as much as I really want to talk about that. But uh, I put out the the call to people to say, hey, does anybody from here want to come on my podcast and talk about some of these things? And Varangian raised his hand and was also nominated. And a bunch of people said, yeah, that'd be a great conversation. And so uh, it's just kind of been in the back of my mind. And then I reached out and said, hey, man, let's get it rolling. Uh, and that's it's a super vague introduction and I think I'm going to leave it at that and just kind of pass it to you. Welcome. Thank you very much for being here. And why don't you tell the people whatever you want them to know about you. And then we can use that as a, a springing off point. Well, I'm definitely happy to be here. I know we've had some really awesome conversations in some of the groups that we hang out around. Uh, Varangian is a tag I use in a number of different places a lot of the a lot of my time and my work and my energy goes to my passions, which is typically training across the board of fitness, martial arts, preparedness, survival, things like that, and how some of that can relate spiritually to uh, to specifically men's paths in life and how they can ritually bind a lot of their actions together during their training, during their actions. Is that where you're going to leave it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's No, that's good. That's good. Okay. So the obvious question then as we begin this journey into who it is you are and what you do is um, given that the emphasis is sort of on this uh, masculine spiritual journey and the way that uh, you find uh, value in yourself by helping others to uh, learn to express those values within themselves maybe uh, a little more fully what sent you down that path in the first place? I mean, why? And I know uh, you might want to explain a little bit about your spiritual, uh, let's call it perspective or perch, because you're coming at it from a from an angle that a lot of folks are unfamiliar with or sort of have like a caricature version of in their minds. And maybe you can uh, dive into that a little bit and then it'll make sense uh, moving forward. Sure, absolutely. So for me... Really, ever since I can remember, ever since being a child, I was physically active across the board. Um, it just felt it felt natural, and I, I kept up with it over the years. So there really hasn't been a time where I've not been invested in training. It's very instinctual, and I don't know if I would call myself extroverted, but I enjoy being social. I enjoy bonding with groups of like-minded individuals or people who just want to get serious about their training passions. Hmm. So I like, I like that social structure very much for me spiritually for the past close to five years. Now I've been uh, walking down a heathen path. I'm, I'm Northern European by blood, American by citizenship and a big part of heathenry, especially for me has been embracing daily training daily action, really searching for capability physically uh, in the world today, but also tying that together with spiritual practice, spiritual nature. 
Now, for a lot of folks tying together the idea of physical training with spiritual practice, uh, that there's some sort of unity of the two, is not an unfamiliar or foreign concept. In fact, it's central to a lot of folks' idea of what their spiritual practice means. But conversely, for some people, there's a stark divide between the physical and the spiritual and the idea that some sort of uh, physical training, however challenging or character building it might seem, has a very distinct and different flavor from that which might be considered spiritual building or training and so i wonder for you what the reason is that you see that there should be that bridge or that you just feel that instinctual bridge maybe you can flesh it out a little bit and express uh how you came to uh, realize that that was important to you on a spiritual level like why is it that you have a spiritual bearing at all when probably half the people in the world claim at least that they do not I would say off the bat that not everyone is the same. I'm, I'm a firm believer in there being different. I, you could say paths, taking a path or a certain lifestyle, whatever goals those may be, that not everyone is the same. And that's I'm very comfortable with that. I think there's a lot of variety in the way that uh, people live and have lived throughout history. But the theme of having a, a connection between, let's say, spiritual and physical, and, and, and there's other we could call them pillars uh, in terms of temporal, emotional, social, financial, purely mental. Uh, you, you can go and you can separate and blend things almost like alchemy, really, uh, to a large degree interchangeably. And there are definitely times where I think it's important to have them very stringently separated. And there are other times where they absolutely interact. So I don't know if I would label it as complex. It can be. It can also be simple. Mm. But because a lot of this will narrow down to what we do daily or regularly, what, it, what is happening frequently. Um, we, are, we are mortal. So we, are, we have a time limit. So how much time we spend doing something or other ends up having deep significance purely by the fact that we aren't unlimited. And you, mm. can, get, you can get a little more uh, in-depth with that. but. For me, instinct does play a big part on it. I'm a big believer in tapping into well, genetics. I think gen genetic memory is the thing. I think for some people, they discover their passions po possibly a different way. There can be a, a large number of things that come into play for how, and I speak to men mainly because I am a man. Uh, I'm mm. not as, uh, and I, I'm obviously learning every day how to hopefully be a little bit better at this thing called life. Uh, but I don't really deal with, women on a level where I'm tying the same values with men and, and uh, potentially with kind of that masculine nature, there is a warrior side, there's a craftsman side, there's a lot of different terminology we can apply to positions and passions that have shown up in history in many, many cultures, different shapes, different forms. So building on this principle that while we are limited, we are also drawing upon a wellspring of what we know of history and lineage and existence. Uh, what happens before us matters and what happens after us, we, we will affect that, that matters as well. So on a personal level, and then again, when you're gathering in a, in a circle and you're, and you're dealing with uh, men among men, training, society in general, that's an exponential growth factor. Humans, while we're also limited, we're also 
social. I mean, there's, there's more than one of us. We don't live alone. Well, one of the first strings I want to pull on in response to what you just said is uh, this alchemy idea. Uh, I really like the framework of alchemy because it makes an intuitive sort of sense. I mean, to tie it into sort of the end point of your conversation there, it, the, the framework uh, without diving in necessarily just yet into the literal truthiness of the idea of alchemy, uh, the the metaphorical framework is very useful because you do have these different, uh, like, quote-unquote, ingredients within you, these different humors, these different uh, mom uh, momentums, these different uh, gods, these different spirits, these different uh, psychological characteristics, and a lot of them are determined by your genetics and then also the way that your genetic milieu responds to the external milieu you know there are it's a, it's like a communication it's communication on all levels and i often use the idea of um or the framework of alchemy and the own work that i do helping people shape mentality uh the book i wrote uncommon mentality it's a th synthesis of a lot of different ideas that I pulled from a lot of places, but a lot of the work that I'm asking people to undertake as they go through the book is to pull out pieces of themselves and really examine them and say, uh, like, what are your principles? And can you make a list right now of the rules that you live by? And if you can't, well, here's an exercise to help you get there. And then now that you have these principles, what does that mean for uh, like this aspect of your life and this aspect of your life? And then so you you build, you build. And, you know, I always ask people, don't, there's, there's a million different things I'm asking you to do in this book. Pick one, two, three, no more than that probably, and work on those. And if you find some value in it, then move beyond that. And I have been sort of a smorgasbord approach to my own personal sacred practice throughout my life because I've been through a lot of crazy extremes in my life. You know, I've been uh, like a very dedicated Mormon when I was younger. And then I was like a hardcore drug addict and a criminal. And I've been, uh, I've, I've been through a lot of iterations of life and I've been very intensely into the things that I have done. And it has, it has, uh, paid and cost me greatly. And the point of all that is just to say that on the level that I'm connecting with you here in this conversation and the idea of alchemy, uh, one of the main uses of that framework that I have put to use in my own life is taking those things that I just mentioned, uh, those, those like errant paths that I walked it's not as though there is a lack of information to be gathered. And, and what you realize eventually is that as you return to your own path towards the light or enlightenment or the next evolution or iteration of yourself, paradigmatic ascension, uh, you left the path to gather the information that you needed to be armed and defended sufficiently that you could survive the chaos at the border. And so that's where I want to kind of chuck it back to you is the idea of how you use your life experience in a certain kind of mental alchemy to be armed and defended as you approach those borders. And that's where the action always is, is at the borders. A forest and a meadow have nothing to do with each other except right there. And the exchange of species and of resources and of uh, like pathogens and everything happens at the edges, but that's also necessary. And so I'm going to just land it there sort of awkwardly and chuck it at you and see what you get with. <laughs> 
Hey, I, I like that. I like the descriptions. I think that the themes we're, we're kind of already organically picking up on here in that humans are mortal, so we have a time frame and there, there's distance involved physically and spiritually. So as you go through iterations, which can easily be uh, described in, in alchemical terms, in alchemy, keep in mind, that has to do as it developed into chemistry. But we can look at something like microbiology and, in my opinion, see uh, a semblance of divine creation. So there are elements, there are plans, and there are, there are results of things coming into conflict or coming into peace with each other. So as you move through iterations of your life, there is experience, there is data or data. Now, whether you're absorbing that consciously or subconsciously, or you absorb that and you only dig through it later through uh, in retrospect, through meditation or, or through guidance, things can definitely go good. They can definitely go bad. Things can be wasted because this is a, a finite world and a finite universe that, that we are in, uh, even though it may have infinite elements to it, perhaps they could be called hidden. Perhaps they're very obvious. I'm sure that's uh, semantics sometimes, but I'm a, I'm a deep believer in that. Um, playing off what you mentioned. Yeah. I've actually met some really cool Mormons before I was raised very strictly evangelical uh, Christian and then went through some similar, uh, a lot of hard drug use, a lot of gang activity, and then got involved in the occult. And those two extremes perhaps met at a certain border and where there was conflict, it was conflict that promoted growth, in my opinion. Uh, and I, you can spiral that conversation out into each person handles certain things differently. But the, the concepts that I'm, that I'm hearing, I, I really like that. I appreciate that. My response to that is I was standing in front of the mirror this morning, just preparing for my day. It was after an initial work session doing some writing. And I was looking in the mirror and thinking, I'm pro-violence, but only if somebody deserves the violence. And I'm pro-people not behaving in a way that they deserve violence. I'm both of those things. Um, and, and like, I'm not pro-violence in a wanton way, uh, but I think that's something that has been missing from our society. I, I'm right at the border. You know, I, my dad told me on the very first day of school on the way there, I don't want you ever to pick a fight, but if you didn't pick a fight, I will have your back. Okay. Those are the rules. And it's like, those are the rules. I mean, those are the rules to this day as a man. It's like, that's what honor and respect and uh, civil society, it's built on that one rule. You don't pick fights, but if someone picks a fight with you, you, you fucking finish it. And that's just, well, because once the line is crossed, I always tell people too, it's like, look, I live in my house. It's mine. And there's a border right at the door of my house. And if you cross that border and you don't have my invitation, I'm not going to think twice about ending your life yeah. because, because people know that they know this is a person's home and their place of safety. And this is where their family is at. And if you put my family in danger, you're my enemy. And if you're my enemy within my gates, I, I can't have that. And I can't have you ever having the opportunity to come back. And I have to send a message that says, if you yeah. storm my gates, if you storm my gates, that's going to be the last mistake you make. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I think part of the reason that you're here is because you're comfortable talking about these subjects. And uh, also you're a thoughtful person. It's not as though you're just uh, like suffering from violent psychopathy. It's just that 
people maybe have a soft perspective on violence these days because everything has been so soft for them their whole lives that uh, they forget that all like all the plastic wrapped around everything keeping their lives uh, from having any sharp edges that plastic's poisonous <laughs> and it's yes. and it's messing with their endocrine systems <laughs> and making yes. them very soft literally you know so uh, yeah. I, I guess i wonder where that where that sort of course that thread of conversation leads you to go well i'm uh well i'll, I'll quote yukio mishima here whether left wing or right wing i am pro violence so I see a lot of the repeating themes on something being spiritual and physical. We talk about borders alchemically, spiritually. Well, look at the world today, literally and physically and unavoidably politically, unfortunately, sometimes that is where this conflict happens uh, when there are changes and differences. So we can see the reflection here of principles we can, we can have on the inside are very much on the outside. And when we talk about violence, Violence is, uh, and, and there you could probably poke holes in this quote to some degree, but there is a quote that I like, and I forget who it's from. Yeah, violence is a language that needs no translation. Now we could break into the semantics of understanding is a message being being digested, but uh, because some people may never learn something, I, I may be thoughtful sometimes, but there are definitely times when I'm I'm vacant <laughs> up top. Uh, whether that's just through my own my own error, just through uh, just through the way things work sometimes. But with violence, I think a lot of people on a certain spectrum, or, or if we bypass dialect and we bypass etymology, the principle and the concept of if me and my own is attacked, defend and justified, it is a really good base level. I don't think everybody agrees with that. You will always find people that are different. Uh, no matter what seems like common sense. But I also um, somewhat controversially will push that in the opposite direction. I think there are times absolutely one should attack. Uh, and differentiating this between like psychopathy or sociopathy. So it, it, people, I feel like they really like to, to label almost everything as this person doesn't give a fuck or he's psycho or, or, or they're a sociopath or he's narcissistic. And it's this like knee-jerk reaction with low-level violence, whether it's verbally, which sounds like a soft violence, and it is, but it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's terminology worth using, at least for differentiating. But uh, someone who executes violence aggressively and what even could be called cruelly to some people, uh, there's a lot of philosophy in my head, uh, the, the tribalism nature of you executing action backed by belief violently for your people or your family it's not always defensive but because that is such a touchy subject and rightfully so because if if these principles translate physically into action in society well that can be a problem and that can be that that can be crime that can be something that's not criminal but that the current system labels as criminal so we have things that can become sketchy for lack of a, of a better word but I will say that it's not just about defensive violence. There are times when somebody will reach out and attack, and that is still part of a system that can be good. So uh, I'm not necessarily in conflict with the premise, but I do have some finer points that I think are worth mentioning. And namely, one of them is who are the people who are worth um, extending yourself in such a way for? Is it your country? I don't necessarily feel that way about what is ostensibly my country in its totality. There are people in this country who are not my friends, nor my allies, nor do they have my best intentions anywhere close to their hearts. Uh, 
in fact, there are those within the nation that I live in, the United States, who have, um, whether overtly or not, uh, become my enemies. Um, and so that's disappointing, and you know, on a lot of levels, but it's not in, unexpected either as a person who pays attention to what is happening around him and thinks about it quite a lot. And hey, I have plenty of errant thoughts, but uh, there's a momentum to the world that's hard not to understand if you pay attention for long enough. And <laughs> but, but, if, but of course, the point I'm trying to get at here is there are certainly people who let's say that I have an understanding that somebody's planning to do violence to somebody who's within my sphere of protection, let's say, or my, my tribe, the people I would include within uh, the people who I extend my give a fuck to, mm -hmm. or who I feel like are worth my time and my energy and my love. Uh, that's not that big of a circle, honestly, in, in real terms. The people who I would uh, like inconvenience myself whatsoever for is really not that large. 50 people, 100 people maybe. Okay. Yeah, I would take care of business in that regard. But if, would I believe somebody who came to me from Washington, D.C. and said, listen, young man, uh, there's somebody off in some country and he's got brown skin and bad plans and we need you to go over there and shoot him. I'd be like, well, listen, show me the evidence. Oh, whoo, rabbit hole there. And let me think about it for a minute. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, you're not you're not what we're looking for. <laughs> we were looking for more of a yes, sir. <laughs> okay fair enough <laughs> but um so you know that's my that's my contention with the with the premise only is we talked about boundaries and there's a quote that i use often because i talked to troy francis the guy who um, uses violence against his own testicles as a mechanism of vitality to <laughs> to uh but he he said something very very true to me he said boundaries are love Boundaries are love uh, because once you draw your boundaries, once you write your rules, once you say this is the space that I'm occupying and this is the direction I'm going and this is who I am, once that's clear, then you are able to express yourself fully within that space. You don't have the fear or the confusion or the doubt that comes with not being certain about who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, so you get to be fully yourself and you get to fully express your love within the bounds that you've set for yourself. And, and, and I think it spiritually it's probably even more important than physically that we set boundaries because what can poison our soul ends up poisoning everything within us and, and then everything that we touch extraneously. So, uh, you know, I guess I just wonder how do you sort of frame that outer limit of who you're willing to engage in some sort of um, proactive or preventive violence for? Because I think that's probably where it gets pretty iffy for a lot of people, even even people, let's say, uh, more oriented towards uh, the beneficial aspects of necessary violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this and this is right where the world is at frequently. Uh, and, and you know what, probably where the world is always at, even if we don't see it in, in, say, a first world country. So 
I've been through about 10 countries and 30 something states. I did five years active military. I've worked with OSI. I've, I've done, I've kind of seen government. I've been, I've been locked up. I've been in prison for a while. So I've done, I've done a little bit of everything and I've tried to pull data out of that and, and see each side. I'm a firm believer that any one man cannot understand everything. It's just how it works. And when we talk about boundaries, there are some boundaries that are not fluid. They don't change. And they're known by maybe more than one person. It's, it could be policy. It could be a law. It could be a general principle known among a culture or many cultures or globally. And there are some boundaries that change depending on culture and depending on time and depending on necessity. So it does get three-dimensional and you don't want to get bogged down in details and get stuck in what's basically a labyrinth of only thinking, never acting. But we are capable of more than especially some modern societies seem to reach for. So when we talk about preemptive violence, it is competitive and it is not always clean and contingency and damage control as, as a tactical solution and as a spiritual principle, although it would be worded differently in terms of possibly reverence, confession, redemption, things like this. When you are moving in that direction and there's risk, it doesn't mean there's just risk to you physically, violently. It means that the things that you are doing can have consequences that could leap in and out of your control. So when you're picking and you're choosing the things that you're willing to play those risks for, because again, you can't stand still and stagnate and endlessly wait until you think you have perfect and you know, you're not going to get that perfection. You're not going to get your perfect answer. But when you draw certain lines, yes, it pans out. So in terms of um, for your government or for your country, I think throughout history, this has periodically been a good reason for many people. I do not personally agree with a lot of what I see in, let's say, American government. I see some things that I do think are pretty good. Everything could always be worse, even if it's heading that way. Everything could always be better, and I hope it heads that way. Uh, but violence is eternal. Conflict is eternal. I, I will be pleasantly surprised in any afterlife if it just never, ever goes wrong ever again. I'm sure that could be interpreted as some form of blasphemy, and I don't mean it irreverently. I just, uh, I guess that the, the nature of being prepared for violence is always, always looking for it unintentionally or intentionally. So when you're drawing these lines and you're looking at these boundaries, the choices you make every day, the connections you make, and whether that's through family or through oaths you've made to people that you've become close to. And again, this is frequently based on time. We have limited time. Who do you spend your time with? What do you spend your time doing? That's going to shape these bonds. What lands do you walk? What are your goals? That's going to organically structure your circle and your boundaries to some degree. So when you shape violence on this, uh, an example could be you know that someone that's dear to you owns property and the neighbors to that property have decided they're going to vandalize the property. And you've got a pretty good idea of when that's going to happen. Now you've got a spread of options, whether you try to deal with local law enforcement to prevent this from happening or you take it into your own hands. If you take it into your own hands, you're asking questions like, am I going to do this discreetly? Will this be deniable to the local system that I'm under? Will I do this openly and make a stand that's possibly moral or possibly just stubborn? Uh, and, you, and you start planning out what turns into very literally real physical tactics. I get the sense from most people that that's not 
even remotely on their radar. You know, I've, I've lived an interesting life, like I mentioned. And when, as a criminal, let's say, you don't want to go to jail, you have to learn how to fly beneath the radar. And when you do that for a while, it, sh it shapes how you look at things and it shapes how you look at other people and you begin to notice patterns that you noticed within yourself if you're a careful observer. And then you have a pretty good sense of deception, a pretty good deception radar. And it can go haywire. Sometimes you're wrong and sometimes it's the wrong kind of deception. Sometimes you're sensing self-deception rather than uh, somebody trying to deceive you. What I mean is like, a, I know when my kids are lying but sometimes they're lying to themselves and not lying to me, for example. That's a good distinction. And the tricky part, I think, with especially catastrophic violence is I have instincts that I trust very much. I, I guide a lot of my life based upon how my instincts coalesce into a sense of what I should be doing. Okay. And I'm also a very thoughtful person. I do a lot of thinking, uh, but my actual decision-making, it's hard to deny that I'm making that based upon instinct. And then I'm using my cognitive capacities mostly as a post-hoc to think about the reasons why I did that to gain a better understanding of myself. And if I find something distasteful, to begin to understand how to reprogram my behavior to skirt around those areas within myself that I'd rather not, uh, those lands within myself that I'd rather not walk. Okay. Um, and... I've done some violence in my days. I hope to be done with it, but I'm not necessarily done with it. I just, I, I don't seek it, uh, but I will deliver violence. And if, and if I'm put into a position where I have to do it, it's not going to be casual violence. It'll be overwhelming violence because I'm a mature man and I don't like, you know, not, I don't have ego in it, uh, but I used to, I used to, uh, and I got in a lot of fights. And, you know, I was a pretty skilled fighter, but I also picked some fights with people I shouldn't have when I was young and inexperienced and stuff. And I got my ass beat. And I've had some other just violence done to my body through life experience that has caused some very significant damage. Yeah. And I think about that a lot. Uh, you know, I used to have a, a very casual willingness to do violence and I hurt people. And uh, those are some things that I'm... Those are some of the reasons that I feel a duty to be a certain kind of man. Mm -hmm. But other times, there are times when I used violence for the right reason. And maybe uh, I was over willing at the time to use it, but it just ended up being the right reason afterwards. Uh, but I knew at a certain point I had to develop myself into the type of person who would restrain that violence until I was certain that I needed to use it and then also be capable of using it in a fashion that's overwhelming and assures to the greatest extent of my ability that I'm victorious when I deploy that violence because I can expect it to be returned mm -hmm. if nothing else. And so uh, one of those things that I think provides me with the moral opportunity to not have to walk those lines within myself again is to train myself to be vigilant and to observe the world around me, both both in terms of like uh, sitting back and analyzing the world as a whole, but also in the moment. I, I am never in public as an example with anything less than like a, a yellow alert as a, you know, as like a, okay. I'm like, a, I'm like, I'm never below like a five or a six when I'm in public. I'm looking at people, I'm watching their hands, I'm watching their eyes. I'm trying to 
you can get a sense of their demeanor and their and their and their uh, like excretions. Um, there you go. And I learned to be that way because I had to. I had to because my life was on the line when I was not a good dude. I had to know what was going on because I was around other people who were not good dudes and they might do me harm at mm -hmm. the drop of a hat and the police will do you harm. Don't oh, yeah. think twice about that. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're black or not. <laughs> I've had some police <laughs> do me some harm. All right. So, <laughs> but okay. Uh, so the point, the point is, I mean, I have my boundaries and my principles, but I have, a. I also have this thing. I was driving down the road yesterday and somebody was tailgating me and I had that thing that was just like, we're in death boxes, man. And you're putting me at undue risk because you just decided you didn't want to, I'm in the carpool lane, man. I'm not in the fast lane. And I got my yeah. wife in here and my kids with me. I'll fucking kill you. Yeah. Fucking kill you. And my heart starts beating and I get the adrenaline and they pass around me finally. And I look at them and they refuse to look at me. And I'm just like, you pussy, you pussy. <laughs> and then, and then I'm, I'm mad about it for like 10 minutes because in a real sense, that person just, casually and cavalierly put my life and the lives of the people who I most care about at risk. And, and people do that just as a matter of course on the freeway every day of their lives. Some people, that's the way that they drive. And, but like in the moment, it's what's trippy about the driving is the stakes are so high. You feel it and you know it instinctually, you know it and it, and it drives up that response. It's like it's lucky that dweeby kid in the glasses with his dweeby, uh, like, be pimpled girlfriend was not within my vicinity because I wouldn't have thought twice about it. And so there's still that part within me that, uh, like, maybe that was within the principled boundaries, maybe not, but there's that part of myself that still unleashes uh, sort of against or like not within my realm of conscious control. And it's only after the fact that. I apply that conscious control and, and rein in. But if, if he had been sitting next to me, I would have punched him in the jaw. I wouldn't have, it would have just happened. You know what I mean? And so um, I guess I wonder, I think training, when we started the conversation talking about training, and I think this is one of the ways in which training, both in a martial sense, in a, in a physical culture sense, but also in a character sense and how those things tie into each other. Maybe you could talk about how taking a principled stand, uh, I feel like it's a moral duty to, to to have those principles and to have those rules in order for your violence not to be an immoral violence. To, and so maybe just take it from there and see what you come up with. Sure, absolutely. Aggression in humanity, again, is, is natural. Um, whether we label it good or bad, it, it's sort of a resource that can go either direction. When I think about channeling, training, um, having this in life as part of life because it always is and it, it always will be uh, i look i look to the past to some degree i look to history i try to study lessons that might have been learned before my time i know that some people overly romanticize the past and, and, and ancestors and whatnot i'm perfectly aware that there are plenty of flaws in any era and in any man but there is wisdom in study always so these martial paths, if we're, if, we're, if we're dialing in on the application of violence mentally and physically and spiritually in a martial art training sense, a habit you might, you might work towards uh, daily or regularly in your life, exposure. Exposure is going to give you some awareness, and awareness is always important, as you mentioned. Reading the room, 
um, situational dependent, yada, yada. You know, the, the, the linguistics tactically change, but the principles historically have great similarity. So when you train and you become invested in something legitimate, because not everything is legitimate, and it's, uh, it, it, it can fluctuate across region, across time, you are exposing yourself physically to some level of risk, a lower level in, in terms of sport or training than it would be in a real violent encounter. But you're, you're walking in, in that land, on that path, in, in that world. You're, you're beginning to read those currents. You're learning a language, a physical language. And as you do this, respect can build for physical reality. It can, it can build for yourself and for others to some degree. Now, in modern society, and let's say we take specifically uh, America as an example, if you're in an inner city area, and there's all these stories of good old boy violence, of, you know, fisticuffs and boxing matches, and I almost hesitate to believe some of those things ever existed. But in today's world, it, you don't know. You just don't know. And that's as simple as the statement gets. When, when things get out of control, who knows what factors are at play? Are there drugs? Or as you mentioned, as a family man, and I, I, I can't even imagine, I, I don't have a wife or children yet, but I can only imagine that that level of protection is just so much more immaculately important. Whereas when I'm moving on my own, I wouldn't call it predatory, but there is a certain uh, sense of movement, especially if I'm moving with a like-minded pack of individuals, of, of being ready for that preemptive movement. Uh, with a family, I, I doubt people are going to be going places, I could use the word adventurously, uh, to try to get what they can get. They're, they're going to raise their family. And th these are broad statements, and these do depend on the individual, but these are just some, some themes that are, that are rolling along in my head right now. With that being said, the differences can be respected. Training those martial arts regularly, family or not, is, is very on a very simple level. It is physical exposure to things that could happen. So you're opening the door to start reading those possibilities. And, and from there, naturally, you get further and further along a path where you're recognizing, you're deciphering meaning, whether consciously or not consciously. Uh, even in emergencies, you're reacting and you're understanding some of the things that you're reacting to. Hmm. Well, I will tell you, and part of it is just who I am as a person, but part of it is that I have had a lot of exposure to crises. I just have a Vulcan mode, I call it. It's pretty straightforward, though. I just I have the ability to uh, sort of distance myself from my emotions and high intensity situations okay. and then all that's left is a cold calculating chance Lunsford who's ready to do what is necessary to move through the situation with the best possible results so if it's uh, I've been I think what I think what spawned it is I had a baseball smash into my face Woo. when I was 19 and it it broke my eye socket and my cheek and my nose and it damaged my eye and I was blacking out as it hit me. And then I saw just blood explode out of my face. And it kind of like brought me to. And I went immediately into shock. I felt very little pain initially. Uh, and I was there with just a friend. It was just me and him. We were just practicing batting and pitching. And I took off my shirt because I knew I was bleeding a lot. And I put it to my face. And 
we walked across the street to the hospital that was there. And I just knew I needed to do that. And I was like, I was like seeing, yeah, man, for sure. I was like, I was seeing in sepia colors and I was woozy, but it wasn't, it was no factor. It was just like, go there. That's the place you go. And then you don't have to worry about anything anymore. That was kind of what I was thinking to myself. Um, And if my kids are are hurt, uh, like a couple of years ago, my kid fell into like a spring in the winter and got wet. And we were about, I don't know, two miles into a winter hike. And so I just threw her on my shoulders and we ran down the mountain. I slipped a bunch of times, busted my tailbone. But it was just no factor. You just, it's like my kid's in danger. I got to get her down there and get her warmed up. Let's go. Uh, And so those are, uh, so, but I wouldn't have that ability to do that and be able to use my ability to be calm in extreme moments if I hadn't exposed myself to some of the things that I have, whether or not I I would do it again. uh, That's a different conversation. I don't think I would change anything necessarily, but I think if I had the wisdom I have now, my path would look differently. It just is a matter of course, of course. But my, I guess my point is, um, I, I don't really think you can confidently say as a person, as a man, as a, as a person in general, but especially as a man, that you're going to be capable of defending yourself or the people who are depending upon you if you've never had any exposure to a situation in which you were called upon to defend yourself or other people. And that's why training is so necessary. And it begins with a lot of people training their physicality because you don't want to walk in necessarily to the uh, jiu-jitsu gym as an example, being the schlubbiest, dopiest, skinny, fat guy or some obese cow. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people do. And I and I think, like, go for it, man. You should, you should. <laughs> yeah. simultaneously do both. But as a, as a like a man with an ego, yeah, you think, yeah, I probably want to be strong before I go in there. And then possibly, and then have to learn. Yeah, you know, it's it just most people want to. They want to be strong. As a reality, that's another conversation. Yeah. It's, it's weird that people should claim that they don't want to be strong, but I guess my yeah, yeah, is, a good point. There's a strength of character that comes from any sort of, um, let's call it habitual and regular training of anything that requires um, significant effort out of you, or yeah. you have to pass through with significant resistance to achieve. Um, and in terms, I mean, we don't necessarily need to keep harping on violence. It's just an interesting path to take, and people get all squeamish about it, which will curate who gets to the part of the conversation that we're getting to here. But I guess, how do you... Violence is an extreme response to something. But there are lots of other kinds of responses that are required out of a person based upon what's going on in the world around them. And it's easy to be casual. Maybe you have strong rules regarding violence, but maybe you're a lot more cavalier again, or, or sort of weakly principled around, maybe you don't speak a certain way to somebody, or maybe you treat women a certain way, or maybe you treat your finances a certain way, or maybe you have rules for behaviors that you don't want to engage in maybe it's like you know you shouldn't eat cheetos but you eat cheetos 
and you don't apply the same vigor and intensity of the rules to the things that don't have such dire consequences. And I'm wondering, how do you approach training to the mundane and the quotidian uh, where it's not necessarily a question of intensity of focus or of mitigating turning up to 11, but making sure that you're still behaving in the ways that you should when the dials turn down to two or one? Man, that definitely delves into things like discipline and motivation. So everyone's wired differently. Once again, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that, but I'm also a firm believer in accountability and responsibility. So when you engage a certain lifestyle or you engage a certain purpose or you find a purpose, your purpose, uh, and again, there's only a certain degree I can, I can speak to others, but for me, um, training is ritual. So this is not something that... And, uh, and, and make no mistake, I am full of flaws, but one of them isn't lack of, of discipline when it comes to training. So for me, it's a little bit hard to, to deal with people who kind of play this chess game nonstop with motivation versus discipline and how do they keep their dials turned to where it's appropriate as opposed to just literally saturation. I, I see it as saturation. This, this is an ocean and I will be submerged in it. Uh, and if you train hard enough, you get gills. You know, it's... it's um, a little bit along, along that line of thought. So every single day, something productive to that end will get done. And it, it, it may, um, it, that can manifest differently in different men. So somebody might say that because his, his willpower is iron and that is how he proceeds. Uh, for me, it's more of an addiction. It's not necessarily that I, that I'm, I even have to use a lot of willpower for it. Uh, I am programmed, partially programmed myself and partially programmed by perhaps my fate or my genetics, whatever, whatever it might be to align and resonate deeply with these actions. And that can open up a whole nother conversation about like, Oh, are, are you truly getting, you know, and confronting what's uncomfortable for you? And, and it is, but people are wired differently. So they're going to approach their, their system for how they train differently. Some people it might not be as much, but they still got to get it done. And they may have to make sacrifices to do so. Other people, it consumes their life. For me, it, re it really has. And I'm happy. I'm happy for that. So you will see a gradient on how they, on how they apply this. And in their training and in their time management, if we shift that focus over to once there's some preparation or awareness, if they're dealing with emergencies, they're dealing with violence, and the answer isn't lethal, the answer isn't turning it up to 11, well, there's lots of systems and protocols in place in terms of law enforcement, but a really realistic example of, okay, the holidays are coming up. You have a drunk uncle who decides to get rowdy. You don't want to hurt him. You just want to control the situation. Something like a very measured chokehold that doesn't damage the neck is much more situationally and violently suitable to that reality than I'm going to pick up this cinder block and go ahead and, you know, millstone him. So it's... Uh, when we talk about training and motivation and discipline and, and situational application in terms of how far you take it, they are very closely related, but it is also a very vast subject. So it's difficult to summarize, but the principle is absolutely there. Hmm. Where do you think duty factors into all of this? I mean, uh, you're kind of hinting at it there. Uh, like, for example, in that situation with the drunk uncle, it's necessary to know that there are gradients of violence and there are different ways of applying it that you might know. 
I can I can put him in a rear naked choke and have him out in about 15 seconds and be quick because he's going to be a drunk and he probably isn't like distrustful of me or even if he is I'm a, I'm gonna get him because I'm paying attention I know what's going on here yeah versus like I feel threatened and other people are threatened maybe drunk uncle is a big powerful man and there are mm-hmm. people around who aren't big and powerful and I don't know what to do I got to stab him with the kitchen knife Woo! party. Yeah, not not the kind of party you want to be at, most folks. You know what I mean? Uh, so, That's true. Um, like, do you suppose that there is a duty, a manful duty to train in that way because of that reason? Yes. Or, or yes. because of any other reason? Yeah. Yes, I, I think that historically we see every single culture in, in varying degrees had a message for their men, for their warriors, for their hunters, for their builders, okay? Because Violence deals mainly with warriors, somewhat with hunters, uh, builders, not quite as much. And there's other roles. These are, these are simplifications. But uh, yeah, when you deal with, and when we talk a lot about awareness, paying attention to drunk uncle, you know, how powerful is he? I'm reading the options. I'm building a schematic for my options because it's reality. And now I'm, I'm using my, I don't want to say moral compass, but spirituality is the driving force behind what's led to this point and my reaction and so forth. It's not always about uh, awareness will carry you to a certain degree, but things will happen outside of control or outside of awareness. And then it's more about reaction because of what you've trained, because your, your higher functions are going to shut down. Shock is a good example. Uh, but when we talk about duty, and, and duty very much motivates, this is interwoven with spirituality, with having subdermal instincts where when the higher functions go down the awareness is there but you are now acting some call it cold and calculating uh for, for me it's it's very warm but these actions are coming out on an animalistic level duty in my opinion exists simultaneously in this subconscious and in the conscious and possibly more if we're going to step away from uh not to sound political, but the binary thought process, which as, as a statement has been poisoned by some people who take that the wrong way. But when we're discussing these layers and duty, uh, loyalty, protocol, these are things that have to do with your affiliations. Who do you, who, do you have oaths to people? Do you, have you made promises? Are you invested in communities materially even? And does that mature into emotional connection or mental connection, social connection? Family is the very obvious big one. There's a hierarchy. Uh, some people shy away from that word. I mean, there, I guess there's a, a strata, if you want to use that word. But whether you I admit like it, hierarchy. Uh, yeah, yeah, there we go. Me too. So when we deal with hierarchy, it, it, it's it's a level of, of order. And it doesn't mean that you have to obsess over negativity. You know, do you love your son or your daughter more? We're not digging into these things that are possibly self-destructing that and, and i think as men really is where this comes in that physical reality is choices sometimes have to be made and they have to be made painfully uh so hopefully we're not all all mentally on board when that happens we're able to zone out and, and delve into some training to avoid some of that extreme pain but if we have to confront it we do these difficult decisions that play into duty they play into loyalty it's going to be again it comes back to time we're here on earth where do you invest yourself? Uh, there's a concept, I believe uh, this was from Paul Wagner, actually, uh, Sadhana. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a Sanskrit, um, and I'm not huge on the whole Vedic process, but 
this concept is what is your devotion? What's your worship? So what do you put time into? It's literally that simple. It's what do you put time? If you're sitting down watching the TV all day, if you're smoking cigarettes all day, if you're glued to your phone all day, if you're eating trash all day, where is your worship? And that again, semantically, we can shift that word for some people that might mean something slightly different, but time management literally is life management. It's life management, duty and protocol and loyalty is in the same folder. It's time, family, very close friends, organizations that stand for certain goals that you align with. Uh, if you're training frequently and you were with a dojo, that's a name that you come to bear. And not everybody still abides by these things. Historically, we saw more of this in maybe medieval or feudal societies where this was, there was no blurring of the lines between duty daily activity, spirituality. It is a, it, it is a fundamentally structured process. Uh, today, amusement, comfort, self-gratification, immediacy, these things throw a whole lot of wrenches in those wheels. And uh, it doesn't mean that it's always evil or bad, but it's just the reality physically of what happens to you. So we talk about duty. It's affiliation and it's time. It's what do you care about and what do you dedicate your time to? There's a, there's a lot there. I hope people will kind of tune into. I'm just kind of letting it sit using this little, pause to kind of just let him just let him sit with it when i was a younger man i went on a hike with some friends it was a good friend and then another friend actually the kid who ended up hitting the baseball into my face and sometime sometime right around that era and a girl that had flown in from louisiana to utah to come see this guy that that knew him from years before we went on a hike to this place called Johnson's bull, which is a very trippy place and has an undeniable uh, sort of eerie, mysterious energy about it that I'm not trying to be woo woo. It's just one of those places on earth that you can feel it is different than other places. And it's a sinkhole in the mountains. And we left the buddy with his girlfriend on a blanket right in the center of Johnson's Bowl. And then me and my other buddy, we ended up hiking up to the ridge and going off on this adventure. And maybe we were tripping out. Maybe we weren't. It's tough to say. Allegedly, we, we might have been allegedly tripping out, but it's kind of central to the story. So you need to know we were allegedly tripping out. But Okay. Allegedly, yeah. We ended up hiking around the ridge to this rock slide. And it was this daunting rock slide. And it was the moon was the moon was up and it was bright, but it was it was treacherous ground to consider going down in daylight. And we decided to go down it. Not only did we decide to go down it, but we leapt recklessly down the thing. And I was imagining myself as a mountain lion, as I often do. Uh, you might say that's my spirit animal if you wanted to be corny or or like truthful about it. But there you go. We got we got down to the bottom, and. Our friends heard us and were kind of calling out, but they weren't able to see us very well. It was just a great distance to where they were. And I decided with this other friend that we were going to act as though we were hunting them and get as close as we possibly could to them and then see like 
if we could get close enough to actually surprise them with violence in a way like you know like to see if we could get there and not have them know we were there until it was time yeah and one of the first things i learned is that we had to move with the wind because the weeds were tall that we were moving through to avoid being seen. And so the wind would come and rustle them and we would move relatively the same pace as the wind. And then you'd have to listen for it to fade. And then you could kind of sink down and wait for the next breeze. And we proceeded like that. And then as we got closer, we sunk lower to the ground and then they knew that we were out there. Maybe they heard it. Maybe it was just an instinct, whatever, but they started calling out. And each time they would call out, I would move a little bit. And then I was army crawling through the tall weeds, getting closer and closer. And my friend was a little bit behind me. He was a little bit east and to the south of where I was. And then they called his phone. <laughs> oh, no. And his phone wasn't off and it lit up. And while they were talking to him, though, or while his phone was lit up and they were, I, I snuck closer and there was a lot of racket going on. And I got maybe within like eight feet of this dude and this girl. And then I just leapt out and surprised him. But it was like I was embodying this mountain lion spirit. And I like it unlocked a knowledge within me. We talked about that sort of instinctual knowledge, that, that generational knowledge, that uh, genetic knowledge. Yeah, It was within me to know what it's like to hunt a person. And that that caused me to it was a weird experience you know it was also weird because i was tripping out allegedly but it, it was a weird way to spend it was a weird way to spend that trip and everything too is my yeah. point but it, i had I, I have hunted in my life but i've never hunted a person until that time not in any real sense and then i hunted them and then i knew it like i knew you're dead i got you and they knew it too and it, like they were real scared once I popped out of those bushes, because they were waiting for something like that to happen, and they didn't really know what we were up to, because they knew we were tripping out, <laughs> <laughs> allegedly. But so I guess the point uh, I'm trying to get at is that was one of the most spiritual moments of my life, and I practice something that I call personal sacred practice. And I mentioned before that I've taken this smorgasbord approach to my my own personal sacred practice and i have rituals and i have rules and i have things that i have designed to make my behavior go a certain direction for the most part i'm flawed just as you're flawed and we are all are but i'm a much better man and a more consistently principled man than i ever was before because i've decided to orchestrate my life in such a way and i've written extensively about the idea of personal sacred practice and i've done the same thing i always do when i write about such things which is to give people challenges and ways of exploring themselves and i actually had a friend read it and now he's been editing it and is going to record an audiobook of it so that's pretty cool like i wrote like ten thousand words on it a while back but the the synthesis of all of it is just look out into the world and find the things that you believe are right and ask yourself why do i believe that those things are right and come up with rules based upon that knowledge of yourself that help to guide what you consciously choose to make your life by engineering your vision mental and literal vision where do you put your eyes and where do you put your mind very much in the same vein that you were just talking about where do you put your focus in your time where do you put your worship because the end goal is to make every moment sacred and the way that you do that is by making each action that you take a principal action in accordance with your sense of what the divine truth is and yep. if you can do that to the best of your ability that's what it means to live a good life it, very much to me. And, and, it, and it's universally 
applicable or almost universally applicable that the man who decides what his rules are going to be and then lives his life according to them is at least admirable, if not good. And great. I like that distinction. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we've been talking for about an hour now and we started off kind of hinting at the spiritual side and then just talked about murdering everybody for a while. <laughs> but on a philosophical level, on a spiritual level, as a man, people will watch this conversation, listen to this conversation. They have been checking in and out as we've been going, but what's if they came to you and said, hey man, I really like the way that you approach this conversation and I'd like to know what you're all about and, and maybe what advice you might have to offer a person seeking to find their own path. What is it that you would want somebody to take away from who you are and what you're about and the message that you have to deliver to the person who's seeking to have a message delivered unto them? Dedication to your chosen path. And your chosen path does not necessarily mean that it's something that's whimsically chosen by oneself. You have to listen you have to listen to your roots. You have to listen to what has happened around you, perhaps out of your control. And when you embrace and when, when you're embracing the confluence of this effect, you're talking about personal sacred practice, which is, I really love the way that sounds. I love that. So I am a big believer in congruence and I'll say socially, but tribally. So, and this, this can deal, you could say ancient history or whatever, but when you build through family and very, very close friends, a, a tribal network where there is similarity, and this could be through shared faith. This could be a very tightly knit uh, Greek Orthodox brotherhood. This could be a very um, honest and reverent group of, of Islamic brothers. This could be really any, this could, this could be a number of Shinto priests that practice their swordsmanship together. Uh, there is so much insane levels of beauty in humanity in the world through this variety and I, I don't I don't mean diversity in the political sense I mean honing in on what is singular or close to singular for, for many of us and I harp on genetics but other things are also a huge factor if something speaks to you uh, maybe it's the land you walk on or maybe it's something that came from outside of your control again I, I, I deliver that because I do not believe that the modern way the world decides that whatever feels good is right. No, we don't decide everything. Look in the mirror. You didn't custom build your body. You put work into it and you can shape it. And the body is a temple, but you, you did not choose the color of your eyes. You did not choose some of the deep instincts that come out of your heart and soul. And you can shape some of them. But when you find around you, around your family, around your tribe, around your friends, around uh, some of your environment, what you're studying each day, what you're learning, these things, embrace them, submerge yourself, sink into this, completely, completely, completely dive in. And the connection with others, I think, is, is a big deal for me. I don't think everyone is super social. I think they can absolutely do something. I don't want to use the word lone uh, or the term lone wolf. But when you say personal sacred practice, there will always be things that are in individuals and individuals alone. But I would say my message to people looking to enrich who they are, it is actually by dialing in their, their daily activity, their service, their worship towards a goal that supports a family structure or a tribal structure. 
because we, we are humans. We are not alone. We're not singular alone on earth. But uh, yeah, the distinction between individual and social, it's, it's worth navigating regularly. Hmm. There's a thing, there's a conversation I have with my kids all the time. I find as a parent, I, number one, I say all the same shit my dad always said to me. Uh, my dad's a wise dude, uh, but it's funny also. It's like, you know, I rebelled against my father very heavily just because I was a strong-willed dude and he was a strong-willed dude and all we had was to each other to argue against, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but also, he's a very good and smart and wise man and he, he drilled the appropriate information into my head all my life until I was ready to start living a principled life. And then it was uh, like front and center for me, which is very convenient. Uh, and my kids, it's been very much the same. I have just lectured the fuck out of my kids. Yeah. And there have been moments where I wasn't sure that that was the approach to take. Uh, but then there's a moment when my kid arrives at an inflection point and they have to make a choice and a much much of their current world will hinge upon the choice that they make and there's a convenient choice and then there's the right choice and it's pretty clear which is which yeah. and uh, children have a tendency to make easy choices i take my kids on hikes a lot and um, you know, they begin to whine at about 3% of the energy expenditure. Uh, and then, and then it takes until they've spent like half of their energy before they run out of energy to whine and just have to focus on going okay. on the hike. But it's kind of like that in life for them as well. But I tell them that the point of that rambling is to get to the point that I tell them, it's like, look, I don't care what you do. I mean, I do, but I also understand that you're going to make your choices and I'm going to try to influence them to the greatest degree I possibly can as your father while you're under my uh, like tutelage and care and dominion, to be frank. Um, but you're going to live your own life and you're going to make your own choices and I want you to have the freedom to do that and to be able to trust you to do that. Uh, and part of that is you have to take responsibility for the consequences of those choices. But the thing that you have to ask yourself regardless of what you're going to do is why would I ever do anything other than my best job? You have something better to do than your best job. I don't think that you do you, whatever it is you're going to do, you might make the wrong choice. You know, you, if you're going to be a criminal, you should be the best criminal. <laughs> You should, you should, yeah, because the best yeah. criminal doesn't get caught. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you're going to be, if you're going to, if you're going to train a, an aspect of your life, you have to say, here's the boundaries on how much time I'm going to spend on this thing, but I'm going to spend that time fully doing this thing. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I've had to learn is I have the tendency, like you seem to have described yourself to go fully obsessive mode on a thing and just dive in, learn all about it, spend all my time doing it, get really into it be all about it, master it. and But I have done that to the exclusion of all else in my life and it's not the right balance for me. It's unhealthy and I have uh, obligations, duties, and principles that supersede my um, desire and tendency to go all obsessive mode on any given subject that I'm learning about. But I draw boundaries and then within those boundaries, I give myself fully to the things that I'm doing. And I try to do a great job within the time that I've allotted, within the energy that I've allotted. And you mentioned a lot throughout this conversation, time management, energy management, character management, 
spiritual management and in a sense those are all the same thing money management it's it's all sort of an integrated whole and the gestalt of all that is more than if you were to divide all of those things because it's your yeah. life yeah. it's your life and that question that i ask my kids and i ask everybody it ties into your life in general it's like why would you live any other life than the best life that you can imagine and work towards i don't i don't necessarily care all that much what that vision in your mind looks like just that you have something that you're working towards and you care about it and you try your best trying your best is like 90 percent of the whole ticket you could sum everything down and just be like just try your best and and learn from your mistakes and you're pretty much done with the rules of life honestly I mean, you can refine it a little bit, and we've had some very nuanced conversation on some of the ramifications of those rules, let's say, but maybe just, I wonder for you, I mean, we know each other as well as we know each other, but you seem like a pretty straightforward, principled dude, pretty disciplined dude, that's the sense I've gotten from you the whole time, yeah, and you're within a group of savages, group of savages, savage dudes, uh, on various degrees of the same path to disciplined self-development, let's say. Why, why do you think there are so many people convinced that that's not the path for them? And, and maybe how would you suggest to them otherwise? Now the animal competitor in me says that difference is part of existence. Uh, if they have a lack of ability or a lack of willingness or a lack of desire to do something. Uh, I am not concerned with conversion. I am not concerned <laughs> with um, leading them out of some, and I, I've gotten shit for being a little bit, I don't want to call it heartless because I simultaneously believe that when someone does have a spark and they really reach out and we know the difference when they reach out and they put the work in, I've got a couple of, of good friends and clients right now that they're putting the work and so much to where you're just, I can't pick up the phone and look at what they're doing without saying, damn, that's what's up. So, um, I, I guess it sounds callous and, and make no mistake. This isn't like a, I'm Mr. Bad at, there's always a bigger fish. And I, there are people that could kick my shit in all day. Absolutely. There's always a bigger fish quite gone. But, uh, with that people who are, that's not their path. Uh, I really don't care about them. I don't care at all. I don't think about them. It's none of my business if they want to be a type of individual that lacks a certain direction or they're wired in such a way that they do not have devotion and passion uh, to whatever it might be. If they're just kind of loosely writing whatever currents carry them wherever, uh, I, I don't do that whole go with the flow thing. I don't unless we're talking about very specific throwing techniques in judo. But uh, <laughs> because you will go with that flow, whether you want to or not. But yeah, in that regard, um, I would say to people that might be a little bit like me, take joy and solace. If you take any time at all to consider it, take joy and solace that you are not like others. Uh, we're not all meant to be the same. I don't make all the rules uh, and I'm glad I don't because uh the divine nature is it is divine i'm not divine so uh, i'm not divine in 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 my ordainment of power but I, i'm in my pursuit of my life i, I would say i pursued the divine but <laughs> there are going to be people that just not all endings are happy 
and not everyone is going to express themselves in the same manner. So that falls back to tribalism and this variety and these differences and, and these highlight what is valuable. These don't um, subtract. Uh, and that's, again, that's a broad statement that can be dismantled in many different ways, like many other things I've said. But I would say I don't have anything to say to people that are not on that type of path. And to those that are, don't, don't get distracted. Don't, um, I don't know if I want to delve into the realm of who's a prophet, but uh, if you're not a prophet, then don't worry about it. Hmm. What if I am a prophet? Well, then that would be outside the scope of my intelligence. Hmm. I get that a lot. Uh, look, man, here's what I want to say in response to that. This podcast is called Uncommon. My book is called Uncommon Mentality. My Twitter profile is called The Uncommonist. I'm not interested in the average necessarily either. What I have noticed in my time as a careful observer of mankind is whether or not they're willing to cleave to these things, to fertilize them, to feed them. There are exceptional things about every person I've ever met in my life. I wish they could see in themselves what I can see in them and that, or, or that it mattered to them. I've spent parts of my life trying to awaken that spark in others. I just offer a hand at this point in my life. I don't, you know, it's a waste of time to try to force somebody to live a life worth living. But I do try to live my life in such a way that I'm in a position to open my hand to somebody who's decided that they want, you know, you, you sort of mentioned a very similar thing, but I, I have I have an interesting position of being like maxed out in trait openness and maxed out on disgust reflex. Uh, yeah, so it's, okay. not, it's, it's an uncomfortable position to be in and much of my life has been defined by being just generally uncomfortable and it's freeing in a way if I'm going to be on a stage if I'm going to be in front of somebody I deem as important if I'm going to be in a conversation with a stranger if I'm going to be in public if I'm going to be sitting by myself with no danger of anybody ever coming within anywhere close to my proximity I'm just not a very comfortable dude um I'm, a, I'm full of life. I'm full of love of life. I'm full of, uh, you know, exuberance for the things that I'm into. That's part of the discomfort, though. It's like a, it's like a literal sense of a physical discomfort because of the intensity of experience, these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, which is not a, I'm not, I'm not crying for pity or any sort of thing like that. I'm just expressing my position, and from that position where I'm at, and the sense I get from this conversation is, like, my audience. I curated my audience for a long time by having just the dumbest name of a podcast and, and committing myself to a certain lack of professionalism that ensured that only a certain kind of people are going to watch this podcast or listen to it. Um, and there are still filters in place in this podcast to ensure that only a certain kind of people will watch or listen to it because uh, like, I don't even want my message to be given certain kinds of people. I want them to self-select to come here and get it. And so I'm in alignment with much of what you just said. And I, I, I rambled on all that way just to say that that's one of the most straightforward answers uh, that people give at that sort of juncture where I ask them to, to deliver a message to the, to the lost. You're just like, Hey man, I don't care about the lost. 
That's not what I'm trying to find. <laughs> so, so props to you, props to you for uh, like being committed to expressing your perspective and one that might be deemed controversial or distasteful or whatever by certain folks. Uh, I applaud being willing to do that. Uh, and that kind of brings me to a point where I want people to be mostly left with that sense of having to contend with discomfort. I get the sense that's going to be a place where they're discomfortable, but I also want to give you the opportunity to maybe say anything you feel like needs to be said that you didn't say, uh, or to, if you have anything about yourself, you'd like to plug, or if you want people to know where they can find you or you don't, all of those kind of things, if you want to say hello to anybody, but I think this is a pretty good place to like start uh, doing the tail end of the podcast stuff and wrapping it up. So people who listen to it kind of get stuck with that uh, sense of having to question whether they care about the lost or not. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, I, I love stuff like this. I love organic discussion. Uh, it's very comfortable for me. I'd, I'd gladly do it again. Um, I am not on any kind of public platform. All my services are private. So right now the people that need to find me are the ones that can't. Uh, maybe one day that'll change a little bit. Maybe it won't. We'll see. But uh, any time this sort of subject comes up, and, and so much of what we've mentioned here is very worthwhile in terms of study. Get to the roots of your etymology. Get to the roots of your semantics. Get to, get to what is your dialect. What, and, and I mean, you can expound upon any given virtue or vice. So it, it's not the end of the road, and everybody knows that. So keep studying. But uh, very important principles mentioned and that came forth very, again, organically, which is refreshing, and uh, I like it. So this has been great. Very good. Well, I appreciate you uh, Appreciate you saying so and approaching the conversation with the candor and also a respectful tone that you kept. I mean, not that I expected anything different, but, yeah, it was a good conversation, and I'd love to have you back on. Let's give it some time, let some new conversations and themes stir up. But um, I guess in that case, if you're good, then I'm good. Good to go. Okay, man. Well, audience, thank you very much for tuning in. I appreciate you sharing your time and your uh, headspace with us. And this has been the Uncommon Podcast. I've been Chance Lunsford. He's been Varangian, among other things. And we're out. <laughs>